Welcome to the Fully Disclosed Podcast. I'm Kim Harrison. Like you, my roles are multifaceted. Wife, mom, granny, Bible teacher, and writer. But I'm convinced the best thing of all is simply belonging to Jesus. And the greatest thrills are discovering Him at every turn. After all, He promises that those who ask receive, they that seek find. And to those who knock, the door will be opened. Everything fully disclosed. For in Him we have everything God is and everything man is intended to be. What if it's only one out of three? What if it looks like a duck but walks on its knuckles and moves like a reptile? And with its bill and webbed feet, what if it has fur like an otter and a paddle-shaped tail like a beaver? The first time the hide of a duckbill platypus was brought from Australia to England in 1799, scientist George Shaw thought he was looking at a hoax and did a thorough search to find the stitches holding it all together. True story. Though the platypus looks like a hodgepodge of missing pieces fused into one, there were no stitches, of course. But the appearance demands a double take. They are freakishly cute. I think they're adorable. They lay eggs like a reptile or bird, but lactate like a mammal. For this reason, the duckbill platypus is classified as a monotreme, a species which includes only one other mammal. Something else unique to the male platypus, it has spurs on its hind legs. While fishing in 1991, Keith Payne discovered them, uh, shall we say, firsthand when he attempted to rescue a seemingly harmless little guy stranded on a recursive island. As he lifted the creature into his boat, he was met with the most excruciating pain of his life when the platypus nailed him, delivering a poisonous toxin to his hand and with it a tormented, throbbing agony that nothing, not even morphine, could alleviate. After all, other anesthetics failed, Relief was obtained only by application of nerve blockers through a wrist block. Now, Mr. Payne was no stranger to injury. As a soldier in the Australian Army, he was awarded the highest honor for valor. But by 2006, the lingering discomfort and weakness he was experiencing wasn't from shrapnel or anything else he had withstood in combat, but rather it was from the platypus sting. Scientists theorize that platypus venom may provide answers to how pain inflicts humans and clues to more effective ways of treating it. They are hopeful that their venom might hold the answers to fighting diabetes as well, as it contains a hormone that helps the pancreas produce insulin. Ecclesiastes 1.8 says, All things are wearisome. Man is not able to tell it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. Just when the tried and true solutions check the boxes of every potential outcome, new adversities surface. The duckbill platypus signals caution that old reliables are not so reliable. As medicine learns to manage the outer limits of human suffering, new thresholds emerge. We are baffled watching this sequel playing out on all levels. Once dependable comforts fail to answer present distress and sorrow, thrills of earlier passions no longer send the heart soaring. Objects that secured fulfillment fail to leave life gratified, and that which gave life purpose ultimately reveals there must be more. In the world of economics, this common occurrence is identified as the law of diminishing returns, but we recognize it in other areas too. I mean, you know what it's like to enjoy a piece of your favorite hard candy, but if you eat six or seven in a row, after the last one, your tongue is so numb you can't taste the candy or anything else. Likewise, we can sample a taste of all the sweetest delicacies the world has to offer, but ultimately we find they leave the heart numb. The Lord is generous with his blessings, but built within them are limitations too. 
They maintain their delight for a time, but cannot secure a steadfast contentment and joy. As C.S. Lewis writes, Our Father refreshes us on the journey with some pleasant ends, but will not encourage us to mistake them for home. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, God has placed eternity in our hearts. Temporal things are only going to carry us so far and no more, and deep down we know it. Philippians 3.20 says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. As each year advances, those temporal charms become less and less enticing. They demand a lot of us without replenishing, and instead leave us famished and dehydrated, hungry for the bread of life, and thirsty for water from the eternal well, springing up to eternal life within. Jesus is the bread of life. He is the living water. Isaiah 55, 1 and 2 says, Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread, and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourself in abundance. Ecclesiastes 12.1 indicates that this eternal perspective puts our young bloods on the side of wisdom too. It says, remember also your creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near when you will say, I have no delight in them. Those young years have the capacity to know and enjoy the greatest blessing, God himself. Each day is a gift and an opportunity to store up treasures in heaven where they cannot be destroyed and where they cannot be stolen, safe with our Lord forever. In Matthew 13, 17, Jesus says something very interesting. Listen to this. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. It is instructive to keep this in mind when reading the Old Testament. I mean, Jesus draws particular attention to it, doesn't he? Those prophets and heroes of the Old Covenant did not have the full revelation of God that we enjoy on this side of the cross. And Jesus indicates their longing to see what we see fully and to hear what we hear fully. And we find them expressing those longings outright. And sometimes we are rather taken aback at their boldness before God. But the Lord doesn't conceal their questions in his word. In fact, he has them in there for a purpose. Because in their longings and even in their complaining and crying out, they are yearning for the one who is promised, the one to be revealed in the face of Christ. As 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, For God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. All that was promised and foreshadowed in the Old Testament is revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. Listen to how Job longs for him. Job 34, 32 says, Teach me what I do not see. If I have done iniquity, I will not do it again. Job's sufferings had brought him to a dark place. In Job 3.11, he said, Why did I not die at birth, come forth from the womb and expire? Jeremiah said something similar. The prophet was mocked and alone, and his life was threatened nonstop. He said in Jeremiah 20.14 and 15, Cursed be the day when I was born. Let the day not be blessed when my mother bore me. Cursed be the man who brought the news to my father, saying, A baby boy has been born to you. Maybe you've been tempted with similar thoughts when life circumstances have brought you to a moment of crisis or panic. 
suddenly in the middle of a hodgepodge of dashed hopes and dreams, of disappointment or failure, alienation and loneliness, sorrow and loss, sickness and tragedy, and many other things that though we know intrinsically are coming in one form or another, we never expect to confront them in the way that we do. Broken cisterns are exposed for what they are, incapable of holding water or giving life, and completely inept in answering why. Why so much suffering? Why so much loneliness? Why so much despair? The short answer is sin. Suffering entered the world when sin entered the world. Romans 8.20 says, For the creation was subjected to futility. And in verse 22, For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Suffering, all suffering, is the consequence of sin. But Jesus, as the sacrifice lamb, was slain for our sin, and he identifies with our suffering, and through his redemption allows us the privilege to identify with his sufferings. And so we will spend the rest of our time together today looking at how he redeems them. Isaiah 58.10 says, If you give yourself to the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then your light will rise in darkness, and your gloom will become like midday. For the servant of Christ, the Bible speaks of pain and perplexity as opportunity. Helping another person, ministering to one in need or in pain, lifts me out of mine. I benefit as I benefit someone else, even in the middle of suffering and sorrow. Ministering to the needs of others is a very practical way of experiencing joy in the midst of personal suffering. There is an authentic and enduring compassion that overflows by assisting someone who hurts when I myself am hurting, especially when it is a similar hurt. To pray for someone else's similar sorrow when my tendency is to be eaten up by my own. In the same way, we can also be on the receiving end of such ministry, and we are encouraged to allow others to minister to us as well. 2 Corinthians is the largest record of Paul's sufferings, and he speaks of how others ministered to him in his trials. As he writes in 2 Corinthians 7, 5-7, For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within, but God who comforts the depressed comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you, as he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. Just as Paul was comforted by friends, our friends become comforting agents to us, as we likewise are for them. Still, human empathy is limited, isn't it? I mean, pain is precise. You do not experience your pain in any vague sort of way, and neither do I. Each day I awaken to the realities of an autoimmune disease. Migraine headaches are a present concern as well. It's comforting to meet up with another who shares like experiences, who understands what it feels like to endure those unique sufferings. And yet, as they walk away, empathy goes with them. I am still left with the reality of a pain so precise, just as they are left with theirs. In John 14:16, Jesus promised this, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, some translate it comforter, that he may be with you forever. The idea of the divine comfort is expressed in the Old Testament, but it is seen mostly through the eyes and in the context of the Messianic age to come. As Isaiah 51.3 says, 
Indeed, the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places, and her wilderness he will make like Eden, and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and sound of a melody. In the New Testament, this divine comfort is not only revealed fully, but exalted. So much so that his comfort is revealed as a divine attribute with a new name. Listen to it proclaimed for the first time in all of Scripture in 2 Corinthians 1. Verses 3 and 4 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. The God of all comfort, a newly revealed name within the Godhead. On this side of the cross, we are granted a new understanding and experience of the Trinitarian God. Not only may we intellectually grasp him as the God of all comfort, we experience his comfort within our own hearts and souls through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us through Jesus. Remember what he declared in John sixteen seven. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, the Comforter, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. The full revelation of him as the God of all comfort was a blessing revealed as a result of the resurrection. Luke 2.25 describes a godly man who was longing to behold and to seize the divine comfort long promised. And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. Next, the passage reveals that baby Jesus enters the temple with his parents. And Simeon declares in verse 30, For my eyes have seen your salvation. The comfort, the consolation of Israel was to be fulfilled in the child before him. And through him, we have full access to the God of all comfort in the person of the Holy Spirit, who ministers to the depths of our souls in all of our hurts and in all of our sadness. As was true for Paul, suffering becomes an opportunity to deepen our understanding and experience of the Trinitarian God. Paul is never overwhelmed by his sufferings the way that Job and Jeremiah were. On this side of the cross, he has access to the full revelation of God in Christ and in the God of all comfort. He writes in 2 Corinthians 1.5, For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. No matter how abundant were Paul's sufferings, the comfort of God was more abundant still. Everything we want to know about God we find in the revelation of the Son. And now we know that the present help in times of trouble spoken of in Psalm 46 is the God of all comfort. And he comforts us in all of our affliction. Remember, where one attribute of God is present, all are present. All three persons share the divine nature in equal measure. Our understanding of the Godhead is expanded because of Jesus coming in the flesh. What was once veiled is now fully revealed. And with this new name, the God of all comfort, we grasp more of the divine nature of God. Jesus also reveals that this is a role in the Godhead that the Holy Spirit carries out. The Father and the Son share the divine comfort equally, 
but it is the role of the Holy Spirit to minister his comfort to us. You could say to activate his comfort within our hearts. And as he brings us his comfort, the Father and Son are with him. We have access to God's comfort in all of its fullness. My capacity to comfort others is limited, but Jesus, who reveals the infinitude of God, that is the limitless nature of God, has as much capacity to comfort as he has to love. He has as much capacity to love as he has to extend mercy. He has as much capacity to extend mercy as he has to satisfy justice, and so on. We tread reverently here, for where one attribute is present, all are present. May we never exalt one attribute of God over the others to bolster a concept of God made in our own image, leading to self-righteousness and idolatry. Where one attribute of God is present, all are present. His nature is not to be dissected. Where one person of the Godhead is present, all are present. Where the Son is, we find the Father and the Holy Spirit too. In fact, the Spirit is the one who reveals the God of all comfort in our experience of Him in times of trouble. And as He ministers to us, He equips us too. The passage does not point to our own personal experiences with pain, for instance, our empathy as the source of comfort for others, but the God who comforts us. This is crucial. He alone is the source of comfort for others in any lasting kind of way, as surely as he is the source of comfort for us. Only he can provide comfort through his spirit, and through him we are made into vessels or channels of his comfort to others. Isaiah 53, 7 says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth, like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. Our suffering takes us deeper still. Paul knew it. In Philippians 3.10, he writes, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Think about it. Our suffering gives us access to a deeper knowledge of God. Jesus spoke everything the Father told him to say. What he suffered within himself on the cross as he took our sin upon himself is not part of the biblical narrative. His only expression of spiritual suffering was in the final moments, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We'll surely look at this moment on the cross more in depth in future podcasts, but for now, contemplate with me. As the Lamb of God, who did not open his mouth as he took all the sin of the world on himself, what did he experience? Did he experience the precise pain of my migraine headaches? Did he experience the precise pain of your present sorrow? Just for a moment, even now in your mind's eye, behold the Lamb of God, who in complete silence takes away the sin of the world. What did he suffer? What did it feel like in his body? Was it the precise pain of every individual hurt ever experienced by every individual person? Was it all suffering in one large heap hoisted upon him? How can we know? Paul indicates in Philippians 3.10 that this is not to be an intellectual knowledge. We cannot know his sufferings simply by reading about them. Paul describes it as an experience, as the fellowship of his sufferings, 
a sharing of them, a participation in them, the fellowship of his sufferings. Just as the sting of the duckbill platypus informs scientists of human pain, is it possible that our pain informs us of the pain Jesus experienced on our behalf? Ah, suffering becomes an invitation to worship. Suffering becomes a privilege. Paul describes his intense, almost unspeakable suffering as a temporary featherweight. He writes in 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18, For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. You know what? The resurrected body that Jesus has purchased for you and for me through his blood will never experience suffering. Revelation 21.4 says, And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Our temporary lives, our sufferings are but a flicker in the span of eternity. Michael Card wrote these beautiful song lyrics. When the kingdom comes with its perfected sons, he will be known by the scars. In our perfected, glorified bodies, we will behold the scars in the hands and feet of our resurrected Savior in heaven. In Revelation 5-6, John beheld Jesus as a lamb standing as if slain. Our only opportunity to know Christ in the fellowship of his sufferings is now. Will it not enhance our worship of the sacrificed lamb, not only now, but in eternity, to recognize his scars in our resurrected bodies, because we have suffered something of them here in our temporary dwelling? Ah, there is purpose in your pain. There is purpose in mine. And there is healing and salvation through his. I close with Romans 8.16. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Amen. Thank you for trying something new among all the options out there and for etching out time to give this podcast an opportunity to minister to you. I pray that it does. Subscribe if you like and join me again next week.